Hello and welcome to DigFin Box, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like, subscribe, let the algorithm know. My guest is Cone Yonker, who is CEO of Time Bank, a neobank operating out of South Africa and now in the Philippines and looking to expand beyond. I spoke with Cone about both the challenges of being a challenger bank in an emerging market, as well as the steps he's taking to make sure that it remains a profitable enterprise. Cone Yonker, welcome to Digfin Vox. Chang, good to speak to you again. Great to have you. Um, you're running now Time, uh, call it a neobank or a digital bank um, with a Philippine license. Very exciting stuff for you. Uh, why don't we start with, you came from a traditional banking background. You were at Commonwealth Bank, if I recall. So um, tell us a little bit about how you went from being in a traditional bank to being in a, a startup bank. Jane, so much of what we see in innovation in the world is actually born from trying to solve difficult problems. Uh, and for me, for the last 20 years of my life, the difficult problem I've been passionate about is financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's become clear is that if we want to bring financial empowerment and agency to, to millions of people who are sitting on the edge of the economic system in the world, that uh, traditional banking just doesn't get there. The cost base is too high, distribution is too expensive and too slow, uh, and that the key is digital banking. So it's really that passion for solving the problem of financial inclusion that convinced me to move into the digital banking space and as importantly, to move out of large institutions into the um, uh, entrepreneurial space, uh, sort of start fresh. Yeah, let's, so obviously there's a, there's a feel good factor in working in financial inclusion, but let's put that aside. We'll just take that as a given. Um, uh, you know, you, you like what you do maybe a little bit more, um, but uh, from a hard nosed money making point of view, how, you know, it's, it's still early days. Uh, can tech enabled startups actually make the kind of, uh, of profits uh, that large deposit-taking and lending institutions have been able to achieve? Jane, that might be the best question somebody's asked me on this topic in a long time. And the way I would respond to it is to say that three years back, we believed that financial inclusion could be hugely profitable. What we can say now is that we know that it can be hugely profitable. And the reason for that is we've been at this now in South Africa for three years, mm -hmm. um, building a bank that now has 5.3 million customers. And in that bank, we serve the poorest people in one of the countries with the biggest Gini coefficient, the biggest gap between rich and poor in the world. And we know that our unit, our unit economics tell us that we make money from the poorest people in South Africa. And that is somebody who gets a government grant of less than a dollar a day uh, because they have no other source of income. Uh, and the key to that is really um, uh, structural cost advantage plus scale plus good customer experience. And if we can triangulate th those things, we can give customers what they need 
with the right cost base at the right scale, we know that this can be a very profitable business category. And that's because your cost base is so much lower. Yes, that's exactly right. And, the, and particularly the cost to onboard customers, the cost to serve customers uh, is much lower. And there's a lot that goes into that from the tech stack that you run to the distribution that you run to how you do marketing uh, and to how you contain your, your, your um, overhead costs in the business. But you still have the same compliance and regulation. You know, that, that is probably one of the um, most challenging aspects of building um, a digital bank inside a regulated environment, as opposed to running a fintech or a neo bank that sort of sits on the sides or rents a license uh, from, a, um, uh, from a regulated place. So there's no doubt that being a fully licensed digital bank, as we are in the Philippines and South Africa, and as we hope to be in Pakistan one of these days, is a more expensive exercise. Um, but it also has significant structural long-term advantages. And, and the biggest one is that your cost of funding mm -hmm. over time um, can become significantly lower. So you take a bigger bet, initially you spend more money, there is undoubtedly a um, regulatory and compliance weight that sits in the business that you could get around by being a fintech. Uh, but the long, at scale, the long-term structural advantages are actually very significant. And does the funding sources for a neobank uh, look the same as a traditional, um, you know, like a Commonwealth bank where you used to be? Uh, you know, heavy with deposits uh, and, and relying on that for funding your own business? Or do you have to go to the capital markets and borrow? Um, Jane, the, 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 the answer to that really depends on the strategy of the particular digital banks. Mm -hmm. So we do see that there are banks that are very lending-led. A good example would be a new bank, uh, you know, in Brazil and Colombia and Mexico, who we really admire. But they went very much for with credit card as their new product, lending led, and they are very dependent and were particularly in the early stage very dependent on, on wholesale funding. We went with a, a transaction led strategy. So mm -hmm. our first product uh, in South Africa and in the Philippines is a transaction bank account with savings uh, um, solutions and so on, which means that um, we um, color currently run at a um, deposit to loan ratio uh, of sort of less than 50%, which means we have more than double the, the, the amount of deposits than, than loans on the book. Um, uh, and we think that that is a quite a good strategy. It's a hard strategy because it's harder to make money on that side of the balance sheet, yeah. but it's a very good strategy from a risk perspective. Okay, and so that goes back into the cost issue. Yes, it does. So to give you a sense of how big these differences are, if, if, if we were for our lending book dependent on wholesale funding in South Africa, we'd probably be paying somewhere between 9 and 14%, uh, depending on the quality of book, uh, mm -hmm. for, for wholesale funding. Uh, our average um, cost of funding uh, on the deposit funding side is around 3.4%. So that is a meaningful um, difference in spread. Yeah between yep. those two sources of capital. Okay, so you've got a nice net interest margin there. Exactly. Okay, 
Very good. Why don't we talk a little bit about Time Bank itself? Uh, you know, what differentiates you? Uh, I think I know you best through your um, your kiosk. Um, so why don't you just explain that? Because you're not, I wouldn't say you're purely digital in that sense. Yes, it's an interesting debate that we have in the business on how we talk about this, because we have these digital channels in retail environments. So the channel itself is digital, but it's not what what we would normally sort of think of as digital, which is on the phone or on the PC. Right. Um, and so, and you're right. I, I would say I would say that um, uh, characterizing the unique aspects of our business, that physical distribution aspects is probably the most unique aspect. And and the way we think about it is that um, many customers um, are not confident to jump in one big jump from a branch uh, or from the cash world in, where they, in which they live to doing all their financial engagements uh, on the phone and online. Um, and what our physical distribution um, uh, model allows us to do is to essentially create a sort of interim stepping stone, um, a digital channel that sits in your local grocery store that a customer can come to they can open a bank account there, they can get their card replaced, reset their PIN, et cetera. And what we often do is we put uh, what we call an ambassador, um, a, essentially a education agent next to that kiosk to help people engage with that channel and give them some confidence and comfort in engaging with the channel. The other thing we do is we, we integrate into retail stores, into their cash registers and checkout counters. Mm -hmm. for the purpose of allowing customers to do cash deposits and withdrawals on very cheaply and again in a way that is very user-friendly. And what we've seen um, with those channels is that they um, allow us to, uh, to um, give people who are not digitally native and typically um, comfortable with the digital environment an experience that they find to be a friendly experience. 80% of our 5.3 million customers have actually come to us through that channel rather than directly uh, online. And it's just explain a little bit what these kiosks do. They sort of um, like, like card ATM or vending machine type things. That's right. <clears throat> so um, they, uh, they, um, they essentially, um, a, a tablet that um, uh, um, uh, presents a customer self-service interface, very similar to the process that you would go to if you, you open a bank account on your phone or on your PC. But um, what it adds to the tablet, it, it adds fingerprinting, biometric capability, facial recognition capability, uh, and it adds the ability to actually print a debit card. Mm -hmm. So the customer's experience of the, of the kiosk is they, they go up to the kiosk, um, they present their fingerprints, they present their, um, their, their phone number, uh, we do all the necessary KY checks, KYC checks and so on in the background, and within on average three and a half minutes, um, we give the customer a fully KYC bank account with a printed debit card, uh, we use Visa, um, so they've got the debit card in their hand. The account is immediately live. 
and we then encourage the customer to go from the kiosk to the closest checkout counter to deposit cash into their account and they can immediately start using their, their account. Right. So there's that's still that sort of yeah, there's still that mom and pop aspect where they have to go and put physical, you know, cash into it. There is that um, as an option, but of course, um, the bank accounts that we launch are fully functional bank accounts with full electronic funds transfer capability and so on. So the customer would also have the option, for instance, to just do an electronic funds transfer from another account, ask somebody to send their money. They would have the option to link a card, their current credit or debit card to the account and use that to top up their account. And so, um, so we give them every possible opportunity to find ways to essentially get liquidity into their accounts. You talk about financial inclusion. How many of your customers for them, is this their first or primary account versus something that they're building on top of an existing banking relationship somewhere? Yeah, it's an interesting um, uh, question to unpick. In a market like South Africa, which is technically quite highly banked, we only have about 15% of our customers who, who say that we are their first account. Mm -hmm. But what we see with a big percentage of the rest of our customers is that they are chronically underserved by, by the institution they're with. They often only use the, the account they have uh, to, to get a salary or to get a social grant and draw all that money in one go. And so, um, uh, so what we um, focus to do is to go beyond just opening an account and engaging with customers to increase the use cases and the and the transactions that, that they use us for. To give you a sense, uh, um, when we started, our customers did on average four transactions a month with us. They now do on average 10.4 transactions a month with us. And so that is much more about creating an empowering um, and useful um, uh, a tool for customers rather than just sort of counting the numbers of customers that get onto our account. We, you began in South Africa, and then uh, your, your first expansion was to the Philippines. Why the Philippines? Uh, what was good about the Philippines or attractive? And also maybe tell us a little bit about why some of the other markets were not the right fit. Uh, Jane, yes. Um, uh, the way we think about our business is that we've got a particular, call it a recipe, a certain operating model that has strengths and weaknesses that work better in some markets than in others. Um, and um, what I would say about the Philippines is that it is structurally one of the markets that are most similar to, to South Africa where we have been successful. The things that particularly attract us in the Philippines is um, that the Philippines have, like South Africa, a progressive regulator uh, with um, sophisticated KYC um, regulations allowing for digital onboarding, um, allowing us to do banking in the cloud. We run our entire stack on AWS in the cloud. Um, so that, that regulator is very important. The second is to find good partners um, with strong um, retail distribution reach. And we were very lucky to found, find the Gokongwe family and to be able to um, partner with them and the JG Summit Group. Um, uh, from a retail distribution perspective and also to, to get them in as shareholders. Um, and then, of course, we look for a young, digitally savvy um, population 
that is chronically underserved. And uh, I think something like 75% of people in the Philippines have never had a bank account. How does that differ from like Indonesia, Malaysia, um, or India, other opportunities in the region? Is it, did it come down to uh, the regulatory aspect? Did it come down to the uh, finding the right partners? What, what, you know, why are you, why are those not yet at least uh, in your, in your empire? Uh, uh, yes, I like the way that you say empire. Um, gotta, you know, you gotta be optimistic, right? Yeah, yeah, we certainly have to dream. Um, uh, all those markets have things going for them, and I would certainly not say that you know we 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 uh, we're not attracted to those markets. Uh, if you ask me the list, I would say partners are number one. Mm-hmm. Getting a great partner is probably the the most exciting thing for us in a market. Um, the other one is to just look at margins in banking. You know, on paper, a market like India, for instance, is very interesting, you know, very attractive demographically, but it's an incredibly thin market, a thin margin market uh, from a banking perspective and a challenging one from a regulatory perspective. Right. Um, uh, so I think that's an important uh, uh, aspect. And then um, the retail landscape, in other words, structurally, what is the what does the retail um, landscape look like is also quite important. Whether we can find what we have in South Africa, which is quite sophisticated and well-branded big box retailers that we find as a sort of an ideal environment for our, um, for our kiosks. Okay. In the Philippines, how do you, there's six digital licenses, plus of course, uh, some of the incumbents are trying to <clears throat> transform themselves. Uh, where do you see yourself fitting into that environment? Uh, you, you know, is this, is there going to be enough cake for everybody, or is it going to get to a point where there will have to be some uh, some you know cross swords? Oh yes, no, I think we already um, we're already crossing swords and, and having fun doing it. Um, you know, a highly competitive environment is always a double edged sword in the sense that on the one hand it's exciting because there are a lot of people who are helping you. Um, create the category, helping people um, think differently about banking, helping people sort of uh, um, sort of have a normalized view of a different way of doing things, and and together the um, the attackers you know um, are taking on uh, both cash and the cash economy as well as the established players. So that's the nice, uh, the exciting part about being part of a more competitive environment with more players coming in at the same time. But one has to be also clear that it's going to be more noisy and that you have to be a little bit more special and a little bit more creative in how you stand out above the noise. Um, And the approach we're taking in the Philippines is very much to um, take advantage of the extent to which we are embedded in the um, uh, JG Summit ecosystem. And, and we think that creates a sort of a safe space for us where we can occupy the territory and uh, stand apart from, uh, from uh, our competitors. Yeah. Obviously, the partnership is crucial. JG Summit has uh, you know, a huge footprint in the Philippines, uh, touches people's lives uh, every day. Um, and of course, they, you know, they're an investor in you, so they want to see you do well. But uh, when you're linked up with such a, a powerful distribu- distribution partner, um, to what extent are you able to maintain, I guess, the, the independence of decision-making at time? 
um, you know, that very much depends on the partner and the, the way they play. Uh, so far, we've really had a great time working with uh, the Gokongwe family and the group. Um, they've they've uh, given the team a very high level of, of independence and autonomy. Um, but they also do that with their other businesses, which means that you don't just come into the ecosystem and somebody tells everyone to work with you. You have to prove your worth in the family. And so um, that freedom uh, is, in that sense, also a double-edged sword in that you have to go, you have to convince the retailers that it's a good idea to work with you. And you have to convince the, the people in the loyalty program that's an important part of the ecosystem that it makes sense to work with you. Uh, it's not just sort of a, uh, it's not a free lunch. Right. Okay. Um, you've recently um, <clears throat> said that you're going to be entering Pakistan or looking to enter Pakistan. Um, huge country, um, big financial inclusion play. What else? Uh, what What is it about Pakistan that's uh, attractive to, to your business model? Um, Jane, uh, once again, a progressive regulator and very good progress on um, uh, digital identity and on instant payments, interoperable instant payments in the country. And those two things, digital identity, interoperable uh, and instant payments, um, mm -hmm. are very important to, 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 to driving the revolution uh, towards a digital finance. And the other thing that's nice is I would say that Pakistan is still largely undiscovered. Um, I'm, I'm almost thinking, you know, whether I should tell you this because <laughs> I, I'd like it to remain largely undiscovered for a while. I would say it's where Indonesia was maybe, you know, five or seven years back in terms of um, the extent to which the international community is realizing the opportunity. Um, margins in banking are really good, both in transactional banking and, uh, you know, on the, on the net interest income side. Um, I would say the banking industry is very stable, um, but um, quite um, conservative uh, mm -hmm. in their ways. Um, uh, I'm speaking under correction, but I think the, the, the loan to deposit ratio um, uh, is under 40% on average in the country, which means that the country remains quite um, chronically undercapitalized, I would say. Right and particularly small and micro business. Right. So there's a lot of opportunity there to, to, to begin lending um, if you've got the right setup. Yeah. Um, what does open banking mean in, in the context of time? Time bank, not time like, you know, uh, passage. Yes. Uh, um, you know, we, we're big fans of open banking. Um, you, um, uh, you know, you will have seen um, over the last few years that we we almost uh, announce a new partnership uh, every two or three months. Mm -hmm. uh, and we believe that um, the, given the pace at which customer needs evolve and the pace at which technology enables us to do new and exciting things, no one is going to be able to keep up and be the best at every vertical and at every aspect of digital financial services. So we think that the winners are going to be the people who partner well, who understand what they do well and work well with other people who do other things well. And open banking is a great enabler towards that. Now, how, much of the, how much of the data in open banking, in your experience, is 
data coming from customer facing uh, entities that flow into you uh, versus other entities being able to call on your customer data to go into their operation? Um, listen, it's early days. So mm -hmm. I think initially it's more of a flow from, from the bank out than from the outside in. Um, and the particular category that is probably most valuable now is KYC data. Mm -hmm. So customer identity data and the ability to actually certify that this person is who they say they are. I'll give you an example. We've got a, a service that we offer to, to corporates in South Africa, which we call pay to ID, which is that if they want to make a payment to an individual, we will, we will deliver back to them a certification to say, you pay James and he is who he says he is. And you can show that to your auditors. Um, I think so initially, I think that's the direction of flow, but it's early days and I do predict that over time, we will see more and more rich and valuable data coming into the bank from the other end as well. Right, but right now you're sort of a custodian of, of verification or identity. Yeah, I, you know, that's one use case. And for us right now, I'd say it's the biggest use case. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I see other things happening. Uh, a, a good example, uh, which is maybe somebody that might argue not quite open banking, but I think goes in that direction is our collaboration with loyalty programs. Mm -hmm. So in South Africa, we collaborate with the loyalty programs of Pick and Pay and of TFG, uh, the Fushini Group, our other partner. Um, and we are seeing very rich and valuable data flowing from those loyalty programs uh, to us um, as well. Looking ahead, how do you scale this business? Let, let's say you're successful in entering Pakistan. That will give you three markets um and i'm sure you've got maybe a couple more on you know in the future that you'd like to try um are these li licenses are national um and they can vary a bit so how much of this is really country by country and how much of it is something that you can operationalize and and create a, a global business um i i think that it uh, it, there's very much in our minds a clear dividing line between which part of the business is truly scalable global and mm. which part of the best part of the business are domestic. So as you quite rightly say, the license is domestic, <clears throat> regulation is domestic, um, and um, customer needs and experience, I think, is domestic in the, in the nuances. You know, so at a very high abstract level, uh, everyone in the world requires the same things. But the moment you, you get into the detail, there are hundreds of nuances. Um, you know, I often quote this old Sufi saying that you can only walk from where you stand. Um, and, and, and where customers are, where markets are, um, differ quite widely. So those are the things that are very, I think, idiosyncratic to markets. And therefore our logic is we take our time, we go one market after the other, and we make sure that we deliver into the market what that market needs at that point in its development. The parts that are that that can be aggregated, that can be run globally globally is really your technology platform, your data and analytics capabilities. Um, your ability to design, build, um, uh, and, and run the tech stacks of banks. And there is very significant 
um, uh, a structural cost advantage in that for the domestic banks. Um, to, to give you an idea, from launching our first bank to launching our second bank, we cut the cost from start to launch by 90%. Okay. And largely that cost improvement from the first to the second bank uh, is a function of the, of the level of reuse that we have throughout technology stack. Last question, Kun. When we look at all that data that you're gathering, still a bit early, but project out a little bit. Um, you, you know, look, look into your crystal ball. What do you think that you'll be able to do uh, in, in the coming years that will be uh, something new? You, you must ask that question um, <clears throat> to a smarter guy. What uh, I, <laughs> I realized when I look back 10 years and I thought what we could do 10 years back and what we're doing now is that I actually lack the, 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 um, uh, the imagination. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a few pointers of things that we certainly think is very interesting. Um, uh, the, 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 the one area is um, the ability for banks now to move into the, um, uh, into the data and um, virtual network operator space. Mm -hmm. I think with 5G coming, with virtual sims coming, and with regulatory environments being more, um, uh, uh, more conducive uh, to non-big telco players playing in the space, I think there's an opportunity for digital banks to take the fight to the mobile operators. Um, so I think that's an interesting space to watch. Um, I think the other one is Internet of Things. We've mm -hmm. seen very interesting models um, uh, developing uh, on, on things like vehicle and asset finance and other, and other asset finance classes using uh, Internet of Things very smartly to manage risk um, and to, um, uh, and to uh, build a much closer relationship with the customers through what you can actually see uh, in the devices. So I can go on, but those are the ones that uh, this week I'm excited All right, great. Well, I think that maybe uh, in, in a year from now, we'll have to revisit this and see where some of these technologies have played out. And of course, hopefully by then you'll be, you'll be live in, in your third market. So Kron uh, Juncker from Time, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you.